You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Amen, amen. Why don't we pray as you remain standing in awe of our God. Father, we thank you for the awesome privilege of coming into your house week in and week out and worshiping the name of Jesus. God, this doesn't get old, this doesn't get stale, this doesn't get boring. This is what we're created for, to to get lower before you and to exalt your name above all else. God, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified by all that has already transpired here and that all that will happen as we open up your word. Father, our prayer this morning is this. God, would you meet us here again today in your grace and your mercy? Would you again meet us here to stir our hearts and, and, and our minds and our affections to the things of Jesus Christ? God, would you let not one person here be unaffected by your word? Protect us, God, from simply being hearers of the word, but help us, Lord, be men and women passionate about the word and be doers of the word as well. So, God, we ask you to come and meet with us this morning and teach us and shape us and mold us into the men and women you'd have us to be through the powerful word of God. And these things, in your name, God, we pray these things together. Amen. Amen. Why don't you please go ahead and grab a seat today. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 14. Uh, Acts chapter 14, we're just going to continue on with our On Mission series, going through the book of Acts. As you turn there, though, I just want to give a quick elder update for you. So Acts 14, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming down the aisles right now. Uh, Their goal is to get a copy of God's Word in your hands uh, that you can follow along. So please don't be shy in putting your hand up. Uh, These uh, Bibles are for you. So as you turn there, I just want to give you a quick uh, elders update. We call them family chats. Uh, We have these uh, every so often in our church. We haven't had one in this whole new year. And so as elders are like, it's about time, it's about time. And so just want to highlight highlight a few things. This is one of the fun family chats that we get to highlight some things for you. And so I just want to, uh, to uh, remind you of the goodness of God to us as a church today as, uh, as elders. First of, the, first of all is this. I just want to, to praise the Lord for last week's Easter weekend. And uh, what an awesome celebration. Amen. We know that we pray hard for Easter, and we plan hard, and you guys invite people, and, and we came, and, and uh, more than even setting attendance records, which we did, which is awesome, because we want to hear people hear the gospel, I just want to encourage you this, that, that at least two people that we know have accepted Christ for the first time uh, this weekend at our church. And so we just want to encourage you that Easter's not over, though. Like every weekend, sort of like Easter weekend for us, we get to celebrate the risen Jesus. So keep inviting your friends. We sometimes relegate to Christmas and Easter. Don't just keep inviting people on Easter. Uh, on Easter, Keep inviting your friends. We want to see God do the same things we did last weekend all year long. So keep praying, keep inviting, and keep that passion in your own heart for who God is and what God is doing. Uh, but let's just celebrate, though, the Easter. Easter. We, sometimes we plan and we pray. We don't celebrate. It's fun to celebrate, isn't it? And so thank the Lord for all we did last weekend. Also, I just want to remind you, this is a quick financial update. Uh, there's some numbers on the screen here. You can look at them. I trust you can all read. Um, if you can't, ask one of our elders after, and we'll tell you what's going on. But we just want to celebrate again that God is so good to us. Uh, usually this time of year, we're like way behind because January, people are getting caught up from Christmas. This year, we're like 1% ahead of giving and 9% behind on spending, which equals 10% ahead. And so I'm not telling you this so you can stop giving. I'm telling you so you can rejoice that God is being... is mercifully and bountifully blessing us as a church financially, not just spiritually, but also with resources to allow all this to happen. And so thank you. Thank you for your participation in this. That's the message from our elders. Thank you. Thank you for your generous, sacrificial giving to our church. We are truly praying that all the monies that come in will go out to truly further God's kingdom. And we also believe that God is maybe doing something as we keep getting money for a building, but we don't have a building yet. So we're trusting that God is aligning the stars somewhere behind the scenes. 
and keep praying with us on that too. God is going to do that in his time. But there's a quick financial update for you. This will be on the website here in the next little while. Uh, another exciting thing we get to do this year with, with your giving is uh, we get to send a bunch of um, money to short-term mission sponsorships. And so we said at Christmas, our Christmas offering, remember all that stuff? We spend a good number, of, good portion of that to, to uh, short-term missions. Well, we uh, put about almost $3,000 towards supporting these seven students going to different uh, fields uh, this summer. And so what you're doing here, we're going to take that to the world through the students that come uh, through Brock and, and Niagara College. And so you can read again, East Asia, and John's going to a closed country, and then through, uh, four going to Peru. And so I just encourage you to pray for these students and encourage these students and even let these students' lives be an example to you. Uh, even if you're out of college, doesn't mean you can't go on missions. And so we're trusting that God is going to do great things through your giving. So again, just remember to keep these students in your prayers. They need them. They'll be gone for a significant part of the summer. And uh, even keep our students in general in prayer as uh, they're not here today because uh, school's over now for most, if not all, and so they're gone. So just keep them in prayer over the summer. Uh, they're such a vital part of our church here. A uh, uh, couple more here quickly. AGM uh, is coming up uh, June 11th, uh, 7 to 8.30. This is our annual general meeting for members only. This is our members meeting. And so those who are committed to us, we're committed to just opening wide everything to you. And so uh, this is coming on June 11th. Uh, we want to remind you of that, 7 to 8.30. If you're a member, we, we expect you're going to be there. This is an important part of our church to keep you updated, but also to, uh, to celebrate and pray together uh, uh, for what God has done and what God is going to do. And so this is an important uh, meeting for us and and if you're not a member yet, we'd love for you to be a member of our church. And if you have been to Discover Harvest, you've been to Harvest Essentials, you're in a small group and serving, and then there's nothing holding you back from being a member. And so we'd encourage you to make Harvest your home. This is what we're telling you early, so you can make Harvest your home before then, so you can be a part of the AGM. It's always such a powerful uh, time together. And so uh, what we're uh, praying is that you'll just be led to, to come and worship with us and to walk with Christ with us and to work for Christ uh, here inside the church and in our community with us for the glory of God. And uh, that's really what church is. Church is, is not a social club. Uh, church is not an elite club. Church is a group of believers who've been changed by Jesus, just coming together saying, you know what? I'm all into the work of God here, and we're going to do this together. And so we uh, truly believe that we want you to be a part of what God is doing in a meaningful way, in a significant way. And actually, God has created you to be uh, actively engaged in a local body of believers. There's really no uh, room for outsiders in the family of faith. And so we just encourage you to be a part of this and take the next steps, whatever that might be, to be a part of our church. I trust that you'll be blessed by that. Whew, I think that's it. I just want to get to preaching. So uh, that's it. So that's just a quick elders update from us. Uh, if you have any questions, please know that our elders' doors are always open. Please uh, grab one of us, uh, knock on our door. We want to be uh, men that really uh, care for the, the people, uh, care for you, and are accessible to you. And so uh, we trust that you uh, will be encouraged by all those things. All right, Acts chapter 14, you all there? Are you all there? Are you ready? All right, we're just going to continue on this, this series on mission, and we usually say verse by verse. We're going chapter by chapter now. Is that okay? Because I've lingered too long. I got caught up in some of the study of this stuff, and we're supposed to be a lot further ahead than we are now because there's so much stuff we just can't miss in the book of Acts. And so we're going chapter by chapter. We won't even be done by the end of June probably, but that's okay. We're just going to linger on into the summer, so it's going to be a year of Acts. And so we just want to glean everything we can from this book for our lives. And as we come to Acts chapter 14, uh, here's what we see. We see followers of Jesus Christ living for one purpose alone, and that is for the glory of God. We see God's people filled with an all-consuming passion to elevate Jesus and help people be in awe of him alone. 
And this is going to be sort of like revolutionary to some of you because this, is, this message is so countercultural to what we're taught and the way we live in our culture. How do we live in our culture? We live in this look at me, it's all about me mentality, and yet the Bible teaches us that that is not at all the way a believer lives. Think about it. The look, the look at me thing, like beauty industry and the health crazes and Facebook and Twitter, what are those mostly about? Look at me. Please just look at me. Look at me one more time. Look at me. Please tell me I'm awesome. It's all, all about me mentality. What's it about? It's about promoting myself and getting ahead and making sure that above everything else, who's looked after? Me. And yet, if we live our lives the way the Bible intended, it is actually our lives are to be look at God and it's all about Jesus. It's really even the reality of this truth even comes out in the five solas of the Reformation. The five Latin phrases that emerge to summarize the theological convictions about the essentials of Christianity from the Reformation. Let me remind you of them. We're going to focus on the last one. Let me remind you of them. Sola fide, by faith alone. These are the essentials of the faith, by faith alone. Sola scriptura, by scriptures alone. Solus Christus, uh, through Christ alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So we're just going to focus this morning on the last of those, to the glory of God alone, and how we can live to the glory of God alone. Acts 14 gives us a glimpse of how to do this. We have three solid lessons from the early church on how to live for the glory of God alone. First one points us to this truth through their negative example. Second two point us, drive this point home through the positive example of the church. Ultimately, though, we arrive at this. If we're going to live our lives fully for the glory of God, we have to get these three things. Here's the first one. From the text, here's the first one. When I live and serve to elevate Jesus, number one, I fight for unity knowing the devastation of divisiveness. How do we live for Christ alone? How do we live for the glory of God alone? Number one is this. It's I fight for unity knowing the devastation of divisiveness. Let me read for you quickly here in Acts chapter 14, just verses 1 to 7, a little section here. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So if you remember from the end of chapter 13, it's a few weeks ago, so let me remind you how they got to this whole place. Uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas were, were serving the Lord, and they got driven out of their last city, and not just driven out of the city, but driven out of the region. And so they... they, they at the end, on the way out, they sort of shook the dust off their feet. And this is not a good thing. It's, it's sort of like, I'm washing my hands of this. I've done all I can do. I've preached the gospel in the best way I know how. And so I'm, I've done all I can do. The, the rest is the Lord's. I'm done. And then God uh, catapults them to Iconium, 90 miles southeast of, southeast of Antioch. And this is another uh, major city that was considered uh, one of the ruling centers of the region, located in modern-day Turkey. And so look what happens. They get there, and they do the same thing they always do. They go to the Jewish synagogue, and they start teaching. What are they teaching? They're trying to teach them based on the Old Testament. You know, they're going from the they're Jewish people, right? So here's what the Old Testament says. You know that so well, but I want to show you Jesus Christ. And here's how Jesus fulfills it all and how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so this is what they're doing. They're teaching and they're having a great fruit and great success in this. Holy Spirit is upon them and a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe people are coming to know Jesus Christ for the first time. It's a pretty awesome and significant reality what's happening in their, in their lives. But 
Seems every time in Acts, right, believers pray, they get boldness, boldness for what? To preach the gospel. The gospel's preached. God moves in great ways. Then what happens always? What is it? Opposition comes. Again, we can expect these things in our lives. But look this. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. All good. But the unbelieving Jews, at least they're consistent, right? Every time the gospel appears, they get angry. And they try and stir up dissension. This, the word unbelieving here, it's, it's not that they didn't believe in God's word. Here's, here's what the literal translation of the New Testament for this word unbelieving is. It's disobedient. The disobedient Jews, the ones who refuse to submit themselves to God and his word. New Testament, disobedience is always associated with unbelief. What do they do? They start stirring up controversy. They, they begin to cause a little ruckus. They're, they're poisoning the minds of the believers. You know what they're doing? They're, they're planting little seeds of doubt and dissension. And, and, and I know they say this, but what about these? Maybe their motives aren't good, and they're just trying to like destroy everything. And all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas see the, the, the winds of public, public opinions shifting drastically, and they're, they're, things are going good. People are being saved. All of a sudden, like, ah. Oh. Ever turning against us. So look what they do. Can you, can you imagine being Paul and Barnabas? Like you're here to, to teach and preach and you're seeing people become to know Jesus. It's all good. And yet this, this massive opposition, people are starting rumors about them and they're, they're twisting their teaching. And so what do they do? You and I, what would we do? We'd probably pack our bags and send our resume out. Like let's go somewhere where we're going to be accepted, Right? It's hard, let's, let's, let's get out of here, and yet, and yet look what they do. So they re- remained for a long time. I found that pretty, pretty profound. It, it's really hard, so what do we do? Let's run away. No, they remained for a long time. Why they remained for such a long time? Because they realized that, man, it is essential that these people get it. It's essential that we stay here to teach them the truth and to combat all these things so that people will truly follow Jesus Christ. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witnesses to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done in their hands. In spite of all this opposition, they're they're still still seeing God do great things. Uh, Opposition uh, sometimes doesn't mean you're doing things wrong. It sometimes means you're doing things right. And God's still moving, but the people of the city were divided. Some siding with the Jews and some with the apostles. And so there's this big division. You realize that the, when you preach the gospel, there's going to be a polarization that happens. There's going to be like, people are either going to love you or hate you. It seems the way it goes. True gospel, people are going to love you or hate you. It's sort of like in the U.S. with Trump. Like, you either love him or hate him. It's like a line down the middle, right? It's to either side. This is what's happening with the gospel. And, and, and the, 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 but the, the, the men of God are standing in the middle preaching. They, they, they don't really care who hates them. They're just about who, who's, who's for the Lord, and they're going to stand no matter what. And so the People are either before the apostles, they're, they're not for the apostles. And um, even if you read this word apostles, just help you understand what this means. Uh, we've learned that the apostles are ones who are first-hand account uh, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, how come sudden Paul, Barnabas is being called an apostle here? The New Testament has different uses of the word apostle. And so you have to really study the scriptures to know what they're talking about. And so this isn't talking that all of a sudden Paul or Barnabas was an apostle now because he hadn't seen the resurrection of Jesus. What's happening here is, is the, other, the other way apostle is used is if when the church commissions people to go out and be their messengers, they're considered apostles. Not in the apostolic sense, but in the small a sense. So we don't have any more big A's, but we have a bunch of more small a apostles in our world, right? 
because the church has laid hands on them and sent them out as messengers. And so really it's, it's not just the apostles and the twelve that people are standing on side with. They're, they're standing on the side of God or the, not the side of God. And so here we have this dilemma and look what happens next. It gets worse. All of a sudden out of nowhere on these two sides, right? And they're like, well, we're for them. We're against them. I think somewhere from the crowd, someone's like, let's just get them. An attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So the side against is so angry, they're like, let's pick up some stones and throw that at them. Maybe that'll make them shut up. And of course, Paul and Barnabas learned of this, and so I guess they were pretty smart men because they got out of Dodge. And they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities in, in, uh, in another region, in another part of the, the region, uh, in the surrounding country. And there they continue to preach the gospel. What a debacle, hey? Acts 14. Crazy how the scenarios of God's people go in the, in the Bible. Somehow we sometimes get the impression that, man, the early church was so good, they did everything right, there was no problems, and man, if only we could be like the early church, we'd have no problems, there'd be no divisions, no fight. Is that what's happening here? Not at all. They are facing the same thing that we face, even trying to do things right God's way. What do we make of all this? They're, they're facing this dissension. See the words in here? This dissension, and, and people are, are all stirred up and poisoned mind against the brothers, and what's, what's, this, what's, what's, all, this, what's all this mean? I think there's two types of passages in, in Acts uh, that teach us how to live for the glory of God. And sometimes it's a follow this, do it this way. Sometimes it's a learn from this, don't do it this way. Well, what type would this passage be, clearly? A learn from this, don't do, this, don't do it this way. If we're going to live for the glory of God, here's a good thing not to do, is to stir up dissension within the body of believers. Look what the ultimate result of dissension is. Paul and Barnabas, all these great things are happening and they're gone. The ministry in this city is essentially stopped because of what? One thing. What was it? What was it? Dissension and division within the body of believers. If we're going to pursue the glory of God as a church, as individuals, here's one thing we just have to do and know. That unity reveals the glory of God and disunity is counterproductive to our mission and the glory of Jesus Christ. What a sad reality inside churches today, and I've been a part of them, and maybe some of you have too, where there's so much division, so much dissension, because this very thing is happening within churches that that the glory of God departs from that place and and there's no spiritual power or effectiveness for the gospel. Why? Because believers get their... Minds and hearts and all the wrong things and start loving the division more than the unity. I've never understood that, but I've seen it over and over. There's some people who just revel in division. They revel in it. It's like a little, some sort of badge of honor, and it's never done in this, like, this clearly antagonist. It's always done in the, the guise of holiness and the guise of what's right, but, but some people just revel in division. And division is never productive for the glory of God. Agreed? Nothing good can come from division within the church. As soon as we study this, I think I think about all the divisions that have happened and the root of divisions, and and I know that that even the root of divisions can easily spring up in my own heart as I live as your pastor within this church. And so we want to live for the glory of God. We've got to be aware of what where divisions come from so we can stop them at their tracks so that we never get to the place where we're kind of in chaos like this church was. 
So I've now been in ministry for a number of years, and I've watched divisions. I've been a part of divisions. I've come to realize that divisions really spring up from, I think, there's, there's, there's many roots of divisions, but here's the five most common roots of divisions that I think we even need to sometimes stop and check our own hearts with and say, is there divisions spring up in my heart that, that, that I'm going to be used of the enemy and not of God in, in, this, in this church and in the pursuit of God's glory? Here they are, five quick things that are roots of divisions in our hearts, roots of divisiveness, and, and I'm just praying that you'll check your own heart. If they're, if they're there, and quite honestly, they probably will be there, and, and many or all of us, some of them, in some way, shape, or form, Let, let's just put them in their, stop them in their tracks now and, and, and move on to pursue the glory of God. Here they are. Number one is this just simple stubborn insubordination. <laughs> That, that's what's happening in this church. Un, unbelief really is disobedience. It's, it's just plain. I'm just unwilling to submit to God and the leadership he's placed over me. Plain and simple. End of the story. Pray there's none of that in your heart. What about this one? Preference pushing. Not really interested in the mission, but instead pushing my own agenda, making sure people know what I want and being served in a way that I desire. That easily creeps up in today's culture, doesn't it, in our hearts? I like this church, but if only the music was, I just wish they had more of and can't get that right. And even theologically, minoring on the majors and majoring on the minors. Preference pushing. Things that are important, the true things that we can't negotiate on, you're okay with those things. You're okay to like not worry about those things, but the little minor things that really don't make a difference and, and are, are, you know, push it until everyone agrees with me. Pray that none of that is in your heart. What about this one? Tongue wagging. I get it. This is a little convicting. Me too. I was sitting under the Holy Spirit all week on some of these things and had to ask God to forgive me on some of these things. Tongue wagging. The the people that are just talkers and gossipers, busybodies, so busy with their noses in everybody else's business that they've forgotten the mission of Jesus Christ. Thinking that somehow it's their job to find out what is happening in everybody else's life and to tell the whole world what's going on. Because usually it gets misconstrued and it gets, right? Mission? Oh, we're on a mission here? Yeah, we are. To make disciples and win souls and tongue wagging just as a cause of divisiveness within the church that ought to be repented of. How about this one? Constant complaining. Oh my goodness, if I had a nickel. You know where that sentence goes. Like a dripping faucet, always pointing out what's wrong with everybody else and negative nitpicking at his first instinct, seldom highlighting positives. I just have the gift of discernment, Pastor. That's not the gift of discernment. I assure you of that. (laughs) Any unregenerate unbeliever can nitpick at anybody. Right? This constant complaining is a source of division. That if it's in our hearts, we have a negative spirit cropping up. We need to repent of that and ask, us, ask God to get us on, our hearts on his page. What about this one? The pious posture. The pious posture. I've got all the answers and you're good as long as you agree with me. And I'm not going to give up till everybody agrees with because I'm so good. I'm so theological. I'm so spiritual. I got it all figured out. Any of those five things in your hearts? Let the Holy Spirit dig. It's good for you. It's not to, to make you feel bad about yourself so you can leave you feeling bad about yourself. It's good for you so you can repent of that and feel good, good leaving because you know you're in line with God. 
I'm just going to say right out from the, from the front here as, as elders, we just don't want any time for these things. We have energy for them, but not the right type of energy that you're probably looking for. Why? Why, why, do we, why, why are we just not going to be okay with some of these things in our church? Why? Because, because God hates these things. Because they ruin all that he does, and they ruin even people seeing the glory of God through our church. And we're to be zealous for the glory of God in our church. How do you know God hates these things, Pastor? Because it says in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, there's six things that God hates, seven things that, that are an abomination to him. But you know what the word abomination means? It's stronger than hate. Two of them would be related to divisiveness. Number one is this, those who devise wicked plans. And the last one, one who sows discord among his brothers. Oh, so it's a big deal to God. It's a huge deal to God. God hates some of these things in our hearts because it robs him of the glory he deserves through the church. On the flip side of this, John 17 tells us Jesus' last prayer. Do you remember Jesus' last prayer? And he, He's before God the Father. What's he saying in his last prayer? He's like, God, God the last part of the, the, the Lord's Jesus' prayer is simply this. He's like, oh God, may they be one just as you and I are one so the world may see my glory. So the world stands on the outside and says, look, what's going on inside that place with those people? They're coming from all these different walks of life, different backgrounds, different preferences, different, you know, but they get along. There must be something to the God that they serve and preach. If we're gonna live out soli deo gloria, here's where it starts. It starts with fighting for unity. Starts with getting low before God and saying, God, you're going to be king of my life. You're going to be king of this church. We're just going to get in line with you and go where you go. Church is a negative example in the first point, but a powerful one, don't you think? That we need to get a hold of so that we can be fully used and fully blessed by God in this place. Here's number two. If we're going to live for the glory of God alone, here's number two. I'm going to, I need to give God all the credit knowing he alone deserves it. I'm going to give God all the credit knowing that he alone deserves it. So the next city they go to, Paul and Barnabas, now at Lystra, they go there, they start preaching. They start sharing the good news of Jesus. This is what we should be about. Everywhere we go, we should be about sharing the good news of Jesus. Moving, let's share the good news of Jesus within this, this, this neighborhood. Finding a new, a new job, let's start sharing the good news of Jesus within this job. Um, <clears throat> so they keep preaching. And so Elisha was a man sitting there who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And so clearly this guy's hopeless, right? Like he's, he's, he's never, ever in his life put all of his weight on his feet. He's never put one foot in front of the other, just showing us the bleakness of this man's situation. So he's listening to Paul speaking, verse 9. Paul realizes, Paul's looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. So he says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And this guy, in the middle of the sermon, springs up and begins walking. This is pretty significant. So Paul's preaching, and just like happens sometimes here on a Sunday morning, every week there's one or two of you that I just know that God's doing something because I can see it in your face, I can see it in your eyes, you're just like locked and loaded, and I'm like, man, God is doing something in them for sure. That's what's happening with Paul here. Paul's preaching, he's like, this guy right here, he, is, he has faith, I can see it on his face, he's, he's so filled with the Holy Spirit, so Paul just says, stand up and walk. And this 
As you can imagine, if it happened here, we'd call it like, what just happened here? I've already talked about miracles, and we know that God can do them, right? Anytime he wants in any person's life, we get that. We've already, that was in a sermon past. Don't want to minimize that. God can do a miracle in anyone's life that he wants to in his time and his way. So if you're here today and you need a miracle, God can do that miracle. If that's his plan for your life. But the full part we want to focus on is the response of the people and the response of Paul and Barnabas to all that happens. And so as they realize that, man, uh, this is amazing. A miracle just happened uh, because of this man's faith. Faith and, and God's activity always go hand in hand. Just a little side note there. So the people get all excited. In a loud voice, they, in a loud voice, they stand up. And so the people in the crowd saw this in verse 11, what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in their own language, get this, they, they got so misconstrued, they say this, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Wow, the gods are here, they're before us. And they started treating Paul and Barnabas like Greek gods. Started calling, look at this. Barnabas they called Zeus, maybe because he was the better looking one, I'm not sure. You think of Zeus, the Greek god, you know, I'm not sure if Barnabas had the washboard abs or not, but that's the picture you get, right? And Paul they called Hermes because he was a chief speaker, so the, the fluent one. So they started calling them Zeus and Hermes, and so there's this whole little chant going on. They started elevating Paul and Barnabas, and I think they were standing here going like, what's going on? All of a sudden, Zeus comes out. The, the priest of Zeus comes out, whose temple is at the entrance of the city. He brought, brought some ox and some garlands to the gate, and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds to Paul and Barnabas. Like, talk about, like, misunderstanding, hey? Like, why would they jump to Greek gods? Well, here's the, here's the history behind that. I find it very interesting, you might too, that years earlier, the, the myth said that there, the, the two Greek gods actually did come, the myth was that they came down and were among the people there, and they asked for food and lodging, and everyone was like, ah, whatever, whatever. And so they disregarded him, except for, except for um, two people, uh, Philemon and his wife. And so they disregarded the gods, and so uh, the gods got angry and sent a flood to destroy them all except for, except for Philemon and his wife. They took them in, and their sweet little shack was turned into a temple, and there they served as priest and priestess. And, and then when they died, there were trees in the temple forever. And so the people were remembering all this myth and like, well, if it happens again, we don't want to miss this, right? Look what happened last time this happened. And so they go into this whole ritual of then now trying to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. I know in our culture, that'd be seen as a good thing, right? Elevating people, athletes. You know, Paul and Barnabas, this is a horrible thing. Look what they do. Verse 14, when the apostles Bar Paul and Barnabas heard of this, when they caught wind of this, they tore their garments and rushed out of the crowd, crying this, men, why are you doing these things? We're just guys like you. And we're bringing you good news about somebody else, about a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all this, and they start preaching right there. They're, they're, tearing, they're tearing their clothes. They're, they're, they're exasperated. It's like, hey, guys, just please don't do that. It's not really the glory of God. They're, they're like exasperated. They start preaching, saying, actually, it's about God, the creator of all things, who's given you all things. He's the one you should be worshiping. And they use this as an opportunity. They use this as an opportunity. The glory that was coming to them from men, they use this as an opportunity to, to put the glory upon God and to point their attention to God. Why such a drastic response? I'm like, why, why such a drastic response? Because, because this is the same response that happened in the New Testament when blasphemy was being uttered. 
God's being blasphemed right now. He's not getting the credit he deserves. And, and we know what happened to Herod when the same thing happened in, in, in Acts 12, right? What happened to Herod? The voice of a God, not of a man. He's like, yeah, not too bad. I think my voice is pretty good. Maybe we should record it and put it on the radio. Remember that? What happened to him? Fell over dead and was eaten by worms. Why? Blasphemy. Paul and Barnabas were like, there's going to be no blasphemy going on in our watch. There's going to be no blasphemy going on in our watch. It's not going to suffice to say, like, please stop it. It's like, like, like stop it, stop it. And they, and they preach. Here's the truth that we learned from this that Paul and Barnabas clearly got that we have to get. And again, this is, this is really countercultural. This is, this is going to maybe mess with a, a lot of people here, but it's biblical. Only one person is designed to get glory from man, and that is Jesus Christ. Only one person is designed to get glory from man, and that is Jesus Christ. It's not your hero. It's not your pastor. It's not, it's not your dad or your mom or your kids. It's Jesus Christ. It's not your boss or the one who provides for you. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only one who is, deserves any glory in our lives and the lives of others. And anytime we steal the glory from Jesus, you know what we're doing? We're blaspheming the name of Jesus. Wow, never thought of it that way before. But we need to start. Not just think about it a little bit, but get this in our hearts. It says this in Isaiah 48, verse 11, it says this, God's glory is reserved for God alone. He says, my glory I will not give to another. I'm not gonna share my glory. No one deserves glory but me. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, I'm created for the glory of God. I am created, what for? I'm not created to receive glory, trust me. I've seen so many men and women receive glory, and what does that do? That, that kills them, it crushes them. I am created to give glory to God himself, that's it, that's my sole purpose here on this life, to give glory to God. John 5, says this, knowing this, how can we believe when we receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God. How can we really believe all that we say we believe about God if, if we're so quick to receive glory and so quick to say, like, look at me, it's about me, and not give glory where glory is due? This is what prompted the psalmist to say in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, not to us. He says it twice. Anytime the Bible says something twice, it means listen up. Not to us, not to us, be the glory but to your name be the glory of God. If we're going to live out this whole fifth premise of the Reformation, going to live solely de gloria for the glory of God, we, we have to get this in our minds and hearts. And I could probably preach this message every single Sunday and it'd still be a hard one to preach. You know why? Because our culture is everything but this. And so often we walk through our lives, we don't fully give God the glory. We, we give him most of the glory and some of the glory, but there's a part of us that wants the glory. We just want the glory, not realizing it's blasphemous to take any credit for ourselves and not give it to God in anything. Let me ask you some questions that you can diagnose your own heart with. Am I living for my own glory or am I living for the glory of God? Am I living for my own glory or am I living for the glory of God? Let me ask you this. Am I quick to make sure God gets the praise for the good that happens in my life? 
Am I okay with not being the center of attention? Am I okay if somebody else gets all the credit for what I think are my accomplishments? Am I quick to let others, believers and non-believers, know that God is the source of all my successes? Am I consumed with getting Jesus into every equation within my life? Good job. Thanks. Wow, look at your business. It's growing so good. Yeah, I know. Why are you looking good today? Of course I am. I spend a lot of work on this. Wow, you're so smart. Look at all your degrees. Yeah, yeah. Not too bad. Thanks for noticing. Look what happened in your church. Yeah, we work hard. We, we really work hard in our church. We pray hard. And, you know, it's a little bit to do with God, but you know, we got something to do with that here too. Am I a glory giver or a glory stealer when it comes to the glory of God? Because this, this is, Paul and Barnabas here, they're, 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 they're teaching us what it is. They're teaching us what it really is to, to, to live out on mission. Here's what it really is. It's really this. Jesus gets center stage always in everything. God gets a credit for my life, for my job, for my family, for my friends, for my abilities, whether it's athletics or music or scholastics, for my accomplishments, my awards, my degrees, my promotions, my business prosperity. God gets credit for everything. That is why we're here to give glory to God. seems so satisfying to get the glory, but you know what? It's empty, it's void, it actually takes us from God instead of brings us, bringing us nearer to God. I know many of you get this. It's just a reminder for you, but many of you get this. I, I love having conversations like this one I had with, with the, the man in our church not that, that many months ago and, and just talking about the successes that, that was happening in, in his business. And he's, he's just sharing with me that, man, God's just blessing me and I, I can only attribute it to God. And, and he was telling me that another... another uh, business associate came who's in the same business as he is to try and figure out how his business was going so well and, and they were walking through everything and he said at the beginning of this meeting he said so I want you to know that we do the exact same thing the only difference is that God is the owner of this business and he, we pray hard and he gets all the credit the guy was like yeah 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 whatever but there is no buts the only reason we're doing well is because God is the center of this business it's God's what an encouragement to, to me to hear that from, from someone in our church. What an encouragement to us to also follow suit with that. It doesn't matter if they're believers or unbelievers. To make sure that God gets the glory. James chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we're going for self-glory, get, get this. God's going to be against you. Who wants that? But when God gets the glory, you get this, God will be for you. Self-glory, God opposes the proud. God's glory, God's glory, God gives grace to the humble. I'm not sure you need any other motivation than that. This is what we're created for, and this is what God blesses. Paul and Barnabas teaching us what it is to live for the glory of God. 
If only we could get this, I think we'd be radically different in our, in our everyday lives, in our families, in our weekly activities, in our church. I am praying that I get this, that we get this. We miss this, we miss it all. Passage goes on, though. Let's go to point number three here right now. Point number three. If I'm going to live for the glory of God, if I'm going to live to elevate Jesus Christ and make him known, I endure in making disciples knowing what's at stake. I'm just going to endure in making disciples knowing what's at stake. This brings God the most glory. Even when it gets hard, we keep, we keep serving Jesus and loving Jesus and making sure that his name is elevated. That's what brings God glory. It's, it's, it's one thing to do that when times are good and when times are easy. It's a whole other ballgame to do this when times are hard and times are tough and nothing's going for you to continue being steadfast in, in making disciples and giving the glory to God. Look at the little subtitle here. After all this is happening and, and, and he's preaching and, and telling the, the common grace of God um, in their lives, it said even, even though you don't acknowledge God, the, the fruitful seasons and, and all this food and gladness, it comes from God. It's this common grace to you. He could still barely keep them from offering sacrifices to them. Look how drastically it changes from verse 18 to 19, though. Paul stoned at Lystra, and I'm not talking about like the... <laughs> feeling pretty good because he was smoking some weed. Context, right? Everything's context. Context. Paul stoned at Lystra. Here's what's happening at Lystra. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the places they just ran away from. They rallied up a little mob, and they're chasing him down. They find him. They catch him. You know what they do? They, he wasn't stoned as in feeling high. He was stoned as in like he was getting rocks thrown at his face. And they hit their mark. And they knocked him out cold, unconscious, where Barnabas was in this. I don't know. Maybe he was really good at dodgeball. Maybe just faster than Paul. I don't know how he escaped all this. Maybe he just smart and saw the stones coming and, and took off. But, but they stoned Paul. How much hate is in this? They dragged him out of the city thinking, thinking that he was dead. They just left him there for the birds. You think you face opposition? <laughs> I got called a few names. People don't like me because I'm a Christian. This guy got stoned. Disciples come, they gather around him, they're like, oh my goodness, what's next? But get this, he rose up and entered the city. And this is not that he was raised from the dead. See that? He was supposing that he was dead. He was unconscious. They were so angry, they didn't take time to probably like check his pulse and say, he's not moving, let's just throw him out there and he's dead. Don't misunderstand this as in Paul somehow had a raise from the dead experience. His raise from the dead experience came on the road from Damascus when his life was changed. So he comes to, and then we probably slap some water in his face, clean him up a little bit. He went right back in the city, and the next day he went, and he went and found Barnabas. Where's my partner? Where's my buddy? Let's go do this together. I can't go without my wingman. He's my encouragement. You can do it, Paul. So they went to Derby and they preached the gospel to that city, and they made many disciples, and so they, 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 they're winning souls for Christ, and so they returned to Lystra. Uh, they went back to the same place they just were, where all the people were screaming, you are gods, and went back to Iconium, where they were run out with stones again. What boldness, eh? Strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, get this, through many tribulations, it's in the Bible. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so they went there, they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, and then they kept on their little merry way. 
It might seem like nothing to you, but I think this is pretty significant. If you're to whip stones at my face until I can't move anymore and I find myself out on the curb somewhere, probably the last thing on my list to do is get up and go back to the same place and preach the gospel. Easy to quit, justified to quit, makes sense to quit, but look, what, look at what they, this, this brings God so much glory. When we persevere in the midst of even the harshest of times, we persevere in what, what matters most to God, making disciples. This is the, the mission of our church. This is what we say. We're, we're here to make disciples. It's God's mandate for us. It's the mission for, of every single life in this place. What's your mission? To make disciples. To help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We see the, 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 the mandate for discipleship right here in this text. They went to Derby. They preached the gospel and made many disciples. They, they won converts to share the goodness of our mission, to share the goodness of Jesus in a convincing, compelling way so that people know Jesus Christ. They fueled the passion of disciples. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They're stirring up a passion in other people to want to know God and live for God. They're sort of like being the, the spiritual cheerleader, right? Get, teaching the word. Get in the word. Strengthen the soul. Get in the word. Let's pray together. Let's, let's go hard for the faith. You can do this. Don't give up. There's... Really what they're doing is they're preparing them for the, the tough mud or not for the walk around the block is what they're preparing them for. Sharing with them and warning them that, hey, hey, to live for Christ is the best thing in the world you'll ever do. It's the most satisfying, uh, it's the most satisfying endeavor you'll ever be a part of, but it's going to be hard. And so strengthen yourself. Start working out your soul for all that's going to come. Get in the word. Start praying. So they're strengthening souls, teaching and equipping disciples, and they're encouraging them to continue in the faith. Whatever happens, just don't quit. That's pretty powerful from a guy who just beaten to death and left outside the city, don't you think? Well, you don't know how hard my life is. Well, trust me, buddy, I know how hard your life is, Peter Paul's saying, right? Just don't quit, just keep going. The only thing that matters is your faith. And why are they doing all this? Because they realize that, look at verse uh, 22, that what really matters is the kingdom of God. Through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They, why are they doing this? Because they, they know what's at stake. They just know what's at stake. If they read this, what's the motivation? I think this is the motivation right here. The kingdom of God is the motivation. What brings God the most glory in our lives when we pursue the kingdom of God? We pursue the kingdom of God. And we don't give up no matter what comes our way. That brings God so much glory. It's not through the easy, comfortable life that we're going to enter the kingdom of God. It says it right here in this text. This just blows out, out of the water all those mentalities, all the, 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 the philosophies that life's supposed to be easy and life's supposed to be grand and, and God's just going to bless us and, and we're going to live happily ever after. It's, it's not the way the Bible teaches living the Christian life. That's easy. Easy to be faithful and sun is shining and all is good. Bring God glory when you're faithful in the good times? Absolutely it does. When do others see the glory of God so much more profoundly in your life? When it's extremely hard and the odds are all stacked up against you and nothing is going right for you and yet you're continuing to love and serve God. Do you know how much glory God receives through that? What brings glory to God is not half-hearted love. It's not serving without sacrifice. It's not only in this for me. That doesn't bring God glory. What brings God glory is when I serve Jesus no matter what the cost and keep my eyes fixed on his kingdom. That brings God glory. 
If only we could have a little bit of that mentality in our North American culture. I just want to glorify God. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they're going to do. I just want to glorify God. Reminds me of a guy named David Brainerd. You ever heard of him? He was a guy about 200 years ago now. He was born. And, uh, but his legacy lives on. He only lived for 29 years. And yet he glorified God more, I think, in those 29 years than many people, most people do in a lifetime, in a full 80 years. He was a guy that grew up with a young kid right early on who was diagnosed with tuberculosis. And so if you know that disease, it uh, takes its toll on your body. And, and so teenage years, he felt he was called to ministry. And so he went to Yale, which was back then a school that was a divinity school and, and stood for the things of God. He went to Yale, and, and as he's at Yale studying to be a pastor, he actually got kicked out of the university because he was standing on biblical truth and, and pointing out to some of his profs and fellow students that they might be hypocrites and carnal and unconverted. And so what do you do with someone who convicts you? They kick him out. And so he was on the street going with tuberculosis, going, like, I'll never be able to live out my calling. And uh, as he's trying to figure out what to do with his life, he got this, this uh, opportunity to go and minister uh, to uh, the, the Delaware natives in New Jersey. And so again, back then, not the most glorious calling. He had offers for churches, but he really felt called that he got, was supposed to go to this, this uh, to, to minister among the Delaware natives. And so he went. The hardest, loneliest calling of the time you could have. Spitting up blood because of his tuberculosis on the way to preaching engagements. Sleeping on beds of straw was the, 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 the biography of David Brainerd eating boiled corn and hasty pudding, struggling with discouragement and depression because he was seeing nothing happen of significance in the ministry he was called to. And yet until the day he died, he ministered to those, those, those people with as much love as he could muster, even at times in his biography, saying, I don't even know if I love these people the way that God wants me to love these people, but I'm going to be faithful to the calling God has on my life. And do you know how many lives David Brainerd affected? Some of the great theologians in the past 200 years came. Their, their ministry is directly affected by the life of David Brainerd, who for 29 years simply lived simply for this, to give God glory in everything. powerful reminder of what we're supposed to be about. In those 29 years, he translated portions of the Bible in the native language of the, of the, the Delaware tribe. He, he started native schools, all while fighting the most unbelievable hardship. Do you think God's glorified by that? That's a story like, man, God is glorified by that. If only we could kind of catch that, that we'd want to just spend ourselves for the glory of God when we live for like 29 years or 39 years or 59 years, that we just want to pack our lives simply just living not for ourselves, but living for the glory of God. We see this in Paul's life. We see this in Barnabas' life. We see this in David Brainerd's life. God wants to see this in our lives too. Knowing that we also, it's not just to put these guys on pedestal, look what they did, this, this, that we can also, also live for God's glory in a way that makes an eternal difference in the lives of those around us. In a way that when our biography is written, there is God's glory on every single page of our biography. What does that take? It takes to take a, a focus on Jesus Christ and a holy surrender. God, I want you to be Lord of my life. I just want to love you and preserve in your kingdom work. I just want to make my life count. That at the end, I can be like Paul and Barnabas. Look what it says in verse 27. At the end, 
that I can just declare all that God has done, that you have done with me, and how I've used my life to help other people know faith in Jesus Christ. The whole chapter even ends with God getting glory. Declaring that what God has done and how he has used them so powerfully in this life. When I first came to chapter 14, I was like, ah, oh, chapter 14. What are we going to say about chapter 14? I love chapter 14 at the end of studying this. I am praying that this would refocus your heart and my heart and this church on one thing and one thing alone. What is it? Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. Because I know that that is going to be a fruitful, powerful, impactful life and church for the kingdom of God. Are you with me? God be the glory. Are you with me? Let's pray that this will be a reality in our hearts. God, as we come to the end of this sermon, we first have to stop and say, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we make our lives and even our ministries and our church about us somehow thinking that we are awesome. This is about what we have done and what we're gonna do. God, forgive us for the pride that creeps into our hearts and overtakes our hearts so often. God, I pray as we repent as a church, God, I pray that individuals here that need to repent, would you give them a spirit, Lord, to not just walk out of here with a little bit of twang of conviction in their hearts, but truly get below you, get, below, get low before you and, and realize the, the, the blasphemy that, that, that occurs when we take credit for something that's due to you. And God, would you revive in all of us, Lord, just a, a passion for your name, a desire to see your name lifted higher than above every single name, a passion to, to make sure you get all the credit for every single ounce and aspect of the life that you've given us and the church that you've entrusted to us. God, we pray you'd use us in the same way you used Paul and Barnabas. Collectively, but also individually, use us that our short time here on earth wouldn't just be filled with frivolous pleasures and, and being comfortable. God, you use us for kingdom impact, eternal things, God. That you'd use us for your glory, that when our biography is written of our lives, people could just put a great big stamp right over the whole book saying, for the glory of God alone. With our names as a little subheader at the bottom. Thank you for your word, God. Would you take it now and apply it to our hearts as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.